You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Welcome to the 1980s Music Graveyard. Thank you for helping to keep the theater clean. Gift certificates are available in the lobby. Remember, no talking during the show. Now sit back and relax. Enjoy the show. Hurrah! Welcome back to... October, the scariest and spookiest month of the year, but it's also a place, time of the year to go, uh, you know, treasure hunting, treasure hunting for great unfound movies, especially the eerie kind, and we got a great little treasure we found here. That's right. Welcome back. I am, everybody you know me, this is the GOAT. I'm joined once again by the marvelous and fabulous Trev 3K. Trev, what's going on, man? I, I know you've been traveling around the world doing shit, you know, like I heard you was just in Russia quelling all the, you know, the internet rumors that Seagal put out there that Vladimir Putin is very clean and he did not influence election at all. What do you think about Seagal coming out to defend Putin? Well, it's not that I was, I mean, I wasn't there for, I just follow Seagal around, you know, right. it's just, it's all about that. I could care less about the politics, but, uh, so but you, I mean, I've, you've seen him, how many times a day would he go into Russian donut shops, do you think? Oh, uh, I mean, it doesn't matter where Seagal is. There's at least three donut shop, donut shop trips a day. Okay. Um, and it, it shows, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. he's got to sample them all around the world. Uh, but I'm glad to be back, man. Uh, it's uh, you, as you just said. You know, this is a little bit of a treasure hunt episode, and I think sometimes you and I take the approach that you know you can talk about the really popular movies everyone knows, but sometimes we can turn the show into a little bit of a public service announcement, right? That's about right. hey, here's some gems that maybe you don't know, and this, today's uh, entry I think definitely falls into that category. Exactly, and uh, I think it's kind of interesting how both of us came to this movie, and we'll get to that a little bit once we get the movie rolling here, but. We are rolling along with the 1983 film, Soul Survivor, and if you guys want to research this or get a hold of it or do whatever, it's important that you understand it's the 1983 Soul Survivor film, because there is, if you look on IMDb, there's tons of Soul Survivor movies, like, in every decade. <laughs> I think yeah. it's a very popular title, but... And we it, should also point out, this one is spelled S-O-L-E, Survivor. Right. Yeah, where some other ones are S-O-U-L, Survivor. But yeah, we got this shit. We actually are both rolling off of, and I can't remember how many different times this has been released. A couple times, I think, on DVD, and then now on Blu-ray. So uh, we are rolling with the Code Red Blu-ray, and I don't know about the DVD versions, but the Blu-ray actually starts out. It's kind of like a you, a mini chapter you could just skip through, but it's a actress, uh, the starring actress, I guess, does an introduction. We are actually on the actual movie. The actual movie. Yeah is one hour 25 minutes and two seconds so we're on the actual movie you can do the display thing on your dvd player to tell if you're on the movie or what but yeah we have it paused literally at the beginning at the one second mark so i'm going to get some and I, I will do i well, before you start going i will just quickly say too because i think we you and i both have acknowledged that this is probably one that we understand a lot of our listeners won't necessarily maybe have this dvd yeah probably uh, nobody first will of all, be syncing up yeah, first of all, Code Red doesn't necessarily make it easy to get your hands on this DVD. No, they don't. Uh, they don't make it easy to get their hands on your hands on any of their releases. But uh, we're definitely advocating that people should go out and get this Blu-ray if possible, this DVD. But I, I know this is going to like make you bristle just a little bit, Goat. But I will say if people really want to check this film out, uh, I it's I'm pretty sure this is floating around out there on the YouTubes. Yeah, and I, th- I think just it kinda, is. Normally yeah. I don't condone that because – you know, like I like I like to, you know, if possible, 
uh, mm-hmm. for people to go out and spend six, seven, eight bucks to get a legit DVD and help the filmmakers a little bit. But exactly. But yeah, like we said, we'll get into it a little bit. But the the release, the home video release pattern of this has been spotty at best. So yeah, I, I will understand it, if people resort yeah. to the YouTubes. And I would just say, if we pique your interest, and that you know, just check it out on there, see if you like it. But this Blu-ray does look great, so if you are into it, right? If you're a Blu-ray collector and and you impulsively kind of buy movies, I would suggest doing what I did and check out actually just the trailer on YouTube because the Mm -hmm. trailer sold me on it. And I would say the trailer is there's a couple like weird little I don't know like monster hand shots. You're not going to ever see a monster hand in this movie. I hate to disappoint yeah. you, but other than that, the trailer will give you an idea of what it's like. And you know, I I, w- I was happy with my purchase based on the trailer. Yeah, the I'd say you know like like we just said, maybe this episode will be a little less screen specific right. than uh, some sometimes is, and maybe it will just be us kind of trying to convince you through talking about the themes <laughs> yes. and what's going on here that this is a film worth checking out. Exactly. So everybody wake up your Blu-ray players, maybe your DVD players if you got the earlier DVD release. I believe it was like 2008 or something it was released on DVD. I think even by Code Red back then. So wake that shit up. I'm going to say one, two, three, go. And when I say go, hit play on your remote so you can get the movie rolling. Trev, you got remote in hand? I do have remote in hand. Okay. Everybody, one, two, three, go. All right. And here we go, and it literally goes from the first second of the movie being black to being, like, picture up, titles are starting, so. Mm. And I gotta say, I love the beginning of this movie. It's very basic, but I I don't know why, Trev, or how to explain it to you, but I love movies that kind of start with this somber, empty, and once you see the movie, you understand these locations, you know, will Mm -hmm. come into play later, but, but I like when movies do that. I don't know, what about you? No, I do too, and I think even just that first shot of you know this empty kind of street, and especially the blinking traffic lights, it has a very Lynchian quality to it. Like that's a real kind of David Lynch hallmark. And yeah, just something about you know seeing a city empty at night is always kind of spooky. And just starting it off like that. And I also we're about to see you know where this is kind of in a timeline. And I don't know about you, Goat, but this is actually a narrative device that I love. I always like when horror movies kind of start near the end of the movie actually right. the kind of in media res and then just, then we come back to see how we got there um it's almost like cliche now but i feel like it, it's always effective i shouldn't say always i'm sure i could think of some examples that aren't but there's a lot of great examples it is because i just like the mystery of wondering well who is this why are we seeing this you know i mean especially this like we're seeing mannequins like creepy mannequins that you know motorized mannequins i guess moving different images and the mannequins, you know, they don't come to play in a literal sense of the movie. They're like, there's no scene where mannequins come to life. But, you know, the kind of ghouls of this movie or whatever these creatures are, they kind of remind you of having that lifeless kind of, you know, yeah. feel to them. Plus, if you're an 80s horror movie fan and you see mannequins, you just start thinking about uh, Maniac. And that can't ever right. help. You know. Or Mannequin starring Andrew McCarthy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or Mannequin 2, possibly. Yeah. So Mannequin 2 on the move. I well, and I believe I, I, Williams, yeah. William Ragsdale, I believe. Yes, it is. I actually yeah. bought that very cheap maybe a year ago, and I still have not watched it. I sat down and watched Mannequin 1, and then I just never got around to watching Mannequin 2. But yeah, I mean, if you start a movie, you know, with your lead actress sitting on a bus all by herself, covered in blood, holding a gun, and you don't give me any context, I'm interested. You know, yeah. I'm in now. And I gotta say, for, you know, like, I have no idea. There's not a whole lot of production info 
are floating around this movie, so I don't know exactly what the budget is, but I'm guessing it was low. And I, it, but I think it actually works to its favor because, you know, the opening. I think they they took a lot of thought, like with how they were opening it up and showing those images, like you said, of the empty city and the girl on the bus, and then like this lady like pops up out of a bed. And it's like she's trying to write down the details of this nightmare she had, basically. Mm-hmm. Like later, we find out it's really more like a vision than just a straight nightmare. But I thought this was a great mysterious way to open it up. Yeah, and then we see what her vision is is like you know a plane crash, and we're seeing the aftermath of it, the wreckage, and it's actually pretty horrific, um, and some good like gore effects here. But uh, yeah, I think that's maybe the biggest surprise of this film, and probably something we'll talk about a lot, is that, as you said, you know, you and I both kind of recently discovered it, and it, we we kind of both consider it an undiscovered gem. And typically, when movies, you know, if there's some like '80s horror movie you haven't seen and you finally get around to it, you really it's kind of one of those like little dumpy, maybe fun, but kind of cheesy fun movies. And this is a really classy horror film. And typically, these kind of films that are this well made, this classy are bigger hits and do have some kind of life. And I think that's the frustrating one about this one, that everything's there to make you feel like this should be a bigger deal. No, I agree. And, like, the thing I really... And we talked about this a little bit in private private conversations lately. But, um, you know, especially with now, with the 2017 vision of horror, a lot of times, like, the idea is, like, okay, we've been making horror movies since the 1930s. We kind of got to go over the top and, you know, big, big loud noises... Uh, huge gore effects with an insane amount of gore spilling everywhere whereas like I really think we're missing that eerie you know suspenseful kind of like strange build up in movies and I think this movie like really has that so that's why this was really like a welcome surprise to me and -hmm. you know it is an exploitation movie it's not trying to be really that like artsy because there actually is a, I mean, we'll talk about it a little bit once we get in the movie gets along a little bit but there actually is a lot of like really bizarre comedy thrown into this movie wouldn't you say yeah that? oh yeah but yeah we're basically starting out with this lady we come to discover she's an actress and this is somewhat the i mean it's definitely set in la but it's also somewhat an la story some of the influences and things that happen into mm-hmm. it but basically, she's making her big comeback. This this former, you know, famous actress. She's coming back, you know, uh, in, in a coffee commercial. Actually, that's another mm-hmm. unique twist. Well, yeah, I, there's a lot of things in this that I thought, like, even on a like a, a smaller level, I was like, man, a lot of thought was put into this that you would normally don't see in these kind of smaller exploitation films. So on a character level, the fact that we have this character who actually has a lot of layers, right? Like, I think in most movies, like the easy way to, would just be, well, just have, let's have a random psychic character. Right. who's like a professional medium. But to have her be a former actress who used to be famous and is now kind of washed up and is trying to come back as a, you know, and the only work she can get is a commercial, but then she has this psychic vision and how it affects her, that's pretty interesting, right? It's just, you don't need those character details, but it just makes the world feel more real and more lived in. And I kind of like the reverse. And by the way, I guess we, at this point in time with what's about to happen in the movie, this, this movie, like even like they kind of redone some of the like more recent DVD covers and stuff to really reference that this was the first Final Destination type movie. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it doesn't really go the same places that Final Destination goes. It's somewhat in the same ballpark, I think, and with some of the same themes. But it, it, it approaches it in way different ways than Final Destination yeah. did. 
I mean, when you're talking to people about this movie and trying to sell them on it, you know, there's there's obvious ways and like obvious parallels to connect it to. And the one that's become a big selling point for is, oh, it, it might be the movie that influenced Final Destination. It also often gets compared to It Follows for a lot of tonal reasons. But I think when you look at it, I think the best thing you can say about it or the most accurate to me is that it's kind of an 80s redo of Carnival of Souls. Right. That's where I think the, the strongest like influence on it is. And I really liked it, and obviously a lot of this was like little, you know, practical budget reasons. But I like that, you know, we kind of get, instead of just straight up watching a plane take off and crash or whatever, I like that we got the glimpses of the vision that the lady was having, uh, you know, predicting this like the night before it actually happened, where she just Mm -hmm. saw a glimpse of the wreckage and all these dead bodies everywhere. And then she saw literally the sole survivor, the real main character of the movie, saw her literally just sitting in her, you know, uh, I guess airplane seat, just barely scratched up and scathed, you know? Yeah, and that's a pretty striking image, too. It is. And then when it actually happens, like, for real, in real time in the movie... You actually get a kind of like a kind of cheesy, but I personally I liked it. But there's like the effect of the uh, air traffic controller at the airport, and he's watching the radar screen, and there's almost like a subliminal flash of like basically I don't know what you would say like an evil. It, it's the cover of the movie. It's like mm-hmm. the little skeleton guy flashes in the radar screen. And then the 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 plane disappears off the radar, and, and it's like a complete mystery. So we really don't even know what happened to this plane, other than it did crash. But we don't know why. Was it supernatural? Like you don't, you just don't know at this point in the movie. Yeah, that that kind of suggests. You know, you were talking about the the fake monster arm they put into the trailer. Yeah. Um, but that little bit in the film, the little like skull that flashes, suggests like a different kind of supernatural element that won't really appear in the rest of the movie. Right. But it is it is a it is a cool visual, and sometimes you know cool visuals went out, and I have no problem with that um this is the one section of the movie that i think i don't know how you felt about it going i felt like i wasn't sure it tracked quite well for me and that we so we we cut to we don't know how much longer after the plane crash this is but we're we're with the sole survivor now denise watson the character's name um on the day she's being checked out of the hospital and for being the only survivor of a horrible plane crash she seems pretty over it like pretty right. quickly here, like, and well, I guess like we can feed that into the character later in terms of you know we understand that re- what you know she is really attracted to this doctor she's trying to flirt with him and maybe that's why, but she just seems to have handled the whole like you know ordeal pretty well. Well, yeah, I mean, like when I watched it, I was kind of like you. I quite didn't know how to take it considering she was the only person out of like whatever eighty people. You know, they I don't think they exactly say how many people it was that died on the plane, but like. Yeah, she's pretty much just like, and like you said, we don't know the time. Maybe she's been in the hospital a month. Like, we don't even really know. But she's just kind of like getting dressed. You know, the film, it just picks up. You know, it it goes to her being airlifted to the hospital and being kind of met by this doctor to then being, you know, kind of her discharge from the hospital pretty much. Yeah. And, and we don't know how much time has gone by, but she's, you know, she's she's just kind of like, like you said, she's over it. And at first I was with you, I was like, I was like, is this kind of like just some sloppy filmmaking or like, what is this? But it's like, you could take it that way, but you could also take it where it's almost like, it's, it's almost like she had a blackout experience and she's not mm-hmm. that traumatized because she doesn't really remember it. That's yeah. That's and know, she. I think she's trying to convince herself too that she's right. not traumatized she's by it. Like it, it informs the character, yeah. And we'll later see how much medication she's on. And yeah, you realize on it. You know, uh, once you get through your first viewing, you realize, oh, okay, actually, this is a character, you know, choice. Right. 
And I think what helps it is the likability of the performance from uh, Anita Skinner as Denise Watson. Uh, I don't know about you, Go. I mean, after I watched this, I certainly got online. I was like, well, I got to see what else this actress did and came to find out she only did one other movie. Um, right. there's, a, there's actually a few main actors in this movie who have very limited credits, and I was surprised to see that. Yeah, and it's, I was really kind of bummed about her because I think it is like a really strong – she just has like a certain kind of charisma that it's that, you know, she – I don't think you look at it and go like, well, that's a huge star. But right. there's, just, there's something about her that she's just very likable. Um, she's likable in that way that someone like a Jamie Lee Curtis was in like Halloween where it's like it right. just feels more like a real person. And uh, yeah, so she, before this, she had done a film called Girlfriends, which she actually was right. nominated for a Golden Globe for. Yeah, um, I found that. I mean, she did. She had to do stuff that just is so old and forgotten by the time I yeah, well, got the, established. It just wasn't on, you know, being updated or whatever. But I did listen to the commentary on this film and the producers did say that from what they understand is just she was actually, um, you know, she came from the Midwest and. Even though she thought she was into acting, the the L.A. Hollywood lifestyle just kind of wasn't right. for her. She started to get a little turned off by it. And after this film, just went back to the Midwest. And they said that she just uh, – I can't remember what they said she went back to do. But she, they, she, I guess she does teach acting in the Midwest and, like, you know, for – to you know, kids and stuff. And it's like, okay, that's too bad. Um, you hate to see someone with talent get kind of chewed up and spit out by the machine. But right. I mean, I mean, I can speak from personal experience, you know, living a time in L.A. and knowing some knowing some actors, actually, but also other creative people is it gets very hard because it's such a high cost of living. And like you like it's hard to make time for your creative projects. And it's also even if you're booking a lot of stuff, if it's not paying very well, which most acting jobs do not pay very well, Mm -hmm. uh, it was probably it's probably just like. You know, it, it, it it's it's hard to come do your you know your art so to speak, and but you know you're you're spending more time just to live in this city than you are working you know artistically. So yeah, I'm sure that's probably what it was like for. She strikes me as the type of actress though that if she had just stayed a little bit more involved and not that I'm saying she should have if, if that was the decision she had to make that's fine, but if she had done like a couple more films like this. Um, she seems like she could have been someone like who would have like a late career, like a Barbara Crampton kind of comeback right. now, where a lot of newer up and coming horror directors would want to use her in their films. I mean, I guess this is maybe a good time to get into it. How kind of little known this was, but it, like we said, like if this was a little better known movie and she would have done one or two other, you know, similar horror type movies, like I, I, I could see her at the conventions for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. sometimes the most rarest people here, you know, show up at those things. Mm-hmm. Now here we get into kind of the first, like when I start saying it starts going a little more. Well, this actually is a little bit of Final Destination bullshit mixed with some It Follows, I think. Because mm-hmm. like basically there was a lot of media. They kind of hoodwink you and believing that there was a lot of media and you know a lot of people want to get at this woman. So they told her to go out the back door, which is like a loading dock. But she sees, like, a little girl there, and it's not like a zombie. Like, it's not apparent that this little girl is really dead or a ghost, but there's something off about her. She's mm-hmm. Her hair is wet. So she kind of, you know, she kind of gets transfixed on this little girl for a moment, and she doesn't realize, like, a truck is backing up on this loading dock getting ready to, like, totally crush the shit out of her. Yeah. And, and as you say... Yeah, we see nobody is like actually right. behind the wheel of the truck. And like you said, this does have a definite Final Destination vibe to it. Yeah. Then we get our first kind of cheap jump scare of the film, which, hey, even back then they were doing, you know. Exactly. But. The perky friend who came to pick her up. Well, it's not even really a friend because uh, 
at first I thought these two were contemporaries, but then it turns out really the the girl is much younger. Yeah. Well, I kind of like that, though, too. I really like this character. And I think I do, I, I, I do take it as a friend, actually. And I think that's another thing that informs our main character and that we realize that, OK, here's this person who, you know, by all intents, as we'll find out later, has a pretty successful career. She's doing pretty well for herself. But then you realize, you know, again, this so I think some thought went into this. She has nobody to come pick her up except for this much younger girl that lives across the street from her. Exactly. And you realize, oh, that's you. We we understand what kind of life she's leading. You know, it's kind of the her career has been all she has, and she hasn't made friends, doesn't have family in this area of town or this area of the country. So that's I think that's a good character beat too. Yeah, and like you know, as the movie goes on, you kind of start to understand. But like at first, you kind of think like, well, is she really friends with the parents, you know, because they are there are her across the street neighbors. Was she friends with the parents, and just the daughter gave her a ride? But it get, becomes more apparent that she actually. Like you said, she she is more friends with the daughter, and I gotta say, we gotta point this out, man, because this blew me away. I think this house is—I mean, the inside's cool, but the outside, particularly, this is my dream house. When I see it's this. awesome, right? I thought that too. Yeah. I love it, and even and even just the way it's like off the street, like directly right. off the street, like that. I was like, man, everything about this house is sweet. Like, I I would love to live there. Yeah, I I, I don't know where it's at specifically. I, I couldn't find it, but but it looks a lot like a Laurel Canyon type house. And Laurel Canyon, there was a lot of really cool kind of wooden houses. And unfortunately, by the time I was in the area, they're all run down. But there you see a lot of cool shit, and it was like a little bit of almost like a country feel in L.A. And like that's what I love about this house and the setting of it. I mean, it could be anywhere in L.A., but. Yeah, it's just that beautiful, like, wood. And it's a huge house, you know, and she lives here by herself, which obviously speaks to how successful she's been as mm-hmm. a producer of commercials and whatnot. Yeah, and it's not like, you you know, you, maybe the temptation would be to, like, oh, let's have the house be really empty right. to show, you know, that. But she's, like, it's really well decorated in there, and, yeah, it's really nice. And you kind of wonder, like, oh, she's been there a long time, you know. And it looks, like, lived in but contemporary. Yeah, it's got a great decor of... um kind of uh you know this, this film came out in 83 um i'm sure it was shot 82 maybe even earlier maybe 81 but it's, it's what i like about this house too and this movie in general too but i like is this movie and like this house like it has like a nice kind of transitional feel of the 70s and 80s did you pick that up oh my, i was just about to say that goat like i i it, it's a weird thing it's hard to put into words but you'll i, I think you'll know what i'm talking about it's maybe some of our listeners will one of my favorite time periods in general in terms of like especially like design and um, interior design is that bizarre transition yes. of the 70s into the 80s i love it like i just there's just something about the way houses looked i love looking at pictures of malls from like the late 70s and early 80s too. Yeah, there's just something about that design aesthetic that always speaks to me. And, it, and it, yeah, it's it's very interesting because I feel like later on everything became so cold and machine like with with architecture, and I kind of like the earthy tones and vibes and colors of mm-hmm. shit that was going on back then. You know, like sometimes I look for house listings just out of curiosity and it's always the older ones that actually haven't been updated that much inside that really catch my eye and you know unfortunately now at this point uh, so, you know depending on how it's taken care of of course but sometimes some of those homes you know they haven't been well taken care of but uh you know if i could find a house that really had that 70s you know even early 80s decor i would love mm-hmm. to live in a house like that because i mean it's just great i mean the kitchen is like lime green <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean it's just it's just really cool no, and this too, you, yeah, the clock oh, cat, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I forgot. I, I forgot all about those clock cats for such a long time until watching too. this movie. 
so basically we're setting him up that the doctor who i mean you're kind of supposed to infer that he became and and you know i wouldn't say he's a super young guy but for a doctor you got to understand how long doctors got to be in training i think he's fairly young you know Mm -hmm. as a doctor he's probably in his early 30s i'd say and uh, you start to get the feeling that, that, you know, he wants more to see, you know, because he's making excuses to call her, you know, under the pretenses of uh, yeah. checking up on her. But obviously he wants to go on a date or continue the friendship or whatever. And it's a nice moment about making her likable again, too, because I think we were talking about, you know, why is she maybe friends with this younger girl across the street? And I think you get a sense that maybe she hasn't grown up all completely, you know, right. for her age, because when she takes the call at her desk, she hurriedly goes, well, wait just a second. And she moves to the bed so she can lay on the bed as she talks to him. And she just seems like she has a kind of like excited schoolgirl vibe to her. Well, yeah, and that's a good time to really talk about who directed this movie. The director of this mm-hmm. movie, he's not super famous, but you've probably seen at least two or three movies he's done. His name's Tom Everhart. This is actually his first movie. And then his second movie, which kind of speaks to, like, that, you know, he kind of had a fascination with with, with younger female characters. Was uh, His second movie was Night of the Comet, which is very mm-hmm. famous for kind of, even in his own words, he said, lifting the whole kind of valley girl vibe and putting it into a genre movie and whatnot so you know i i the thing you know well let's get into it a second how did you come to to get a hold of this movie and see it trev why don't you go into that real quick well, so the reason, the way I found out about this movie is I, I listened to another podcast called Shockwaves, um, a horror podcast. It's actually my favorite horror podcast, um, pretty much the primary one I listened to. And uh, at some point, they discovered it. They were doing an episode talking about kind of undiscovered gems, and this was brought up. And eventually, all of the hosts saw it. And it was one of the rare films that all of the hosts agreed is something everyone should track down and see. And they kept talking about it. And in regards, like I said, they kept talking about how they were like convinced they're like man we gotta i i wonder if they the uh when the guy who made it follow saw this because it just seems like it's such an influence on that and then of course they talked about the final destination element and they just really sold it on me so uh it got to the point where after hearing them talk about it for so long um i i very rarely blind buy anymore i'm I'm a lot i'm a lot pickier but this was a a rare instance where once that blu-ray became available again because it kind of hadn't been for a bit um it got out there and i just did a blind buy and i certainly didn't regret it and didn't you say that um again just to put a little context maybe some people aren't familiar code red dvd was a very it's literally like a small one-man operation type thing uh kind of similar to synapse but Let's be honest; it's run completely different than Synapse. Yeah. But uh, but basically, a lot of their stuff is you can only get available. It's very limited. I think it's almost like a Twilight Time, you know, business model where they they only have a license to make X amount of copies, mm-hmm. maybe usually a thousand, maybe less. I'm not sure. And uh, a lot of times, a lot of the releases you have to get directly from like either a website or the guy from calling him. And mm-hmm. didn't you say the, the the Shockwaves podcast? They actually had to convince him to drudge up the last couple of copies he had and send it to Die. Yeah, that's kind of kind of what it sounded like. Uh, he actually went on an, another podcast with one of the Shockwaves hosts, uh, the Pure Cinema podcast with Eric Kane. And Eric Kane was talking about how this was like they thought one of the strongest movies he'd released, and he was like, "Well, I just got some copies like sitting in a garage somewhere." And then I believe he made them available to, to Diabolic DVD, who now has the exclusive, uh, you know. Uh, they have the the code red blu-rays of this exclusively so yeah i mean i i think i don't want you know code red uh, you should support them they are a great company they pick very weird kind of lesser known films to throw out there there's no doubt that 
Bill Olson, the man who runs it, um, is uh, an odd bird. Very eccentric. And, and sometimes he can get, I think, a little upset when a film doesn't, you know, when a right. film doesn't initially sell a lot of copies and he just doesn't keep selling it. And this was one that he kind of had to be convinced to, to throw back out there. Right. And really, I don't know. It's like I'm, I'm torn because I think it's cool that he's putting films out like this. But then this is one where I kind of go like, man, I wish like Scream Factory, somebody had this, would be able to bring more attention to it. Exactly. Now, that last scene that just happened, you kind of got back to the, 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 I don't know what you call it, the kind of pack of girls mentality that Tom Eberhardt was all about. You know, I'm such a huge Night of the Comet fan, and then when I looked it up and you had told me he was the director of this, you know, and I watched the trailer, I was sold. I was like, I gotta get it, jumped on Diabolic DVD. And by the way, I just want to make it, like, very clear, because I know some... Some, some I don't know, podcasts are very pro this company. We're not pro or anti any. We appreciate any DVD company that puts it out, any DVD website that sells shit. So I don't, I don't want to oh, yeah. make this a commercial for anything, but I'm just trying to yeah. let you guys know this is like literally the only place you can get this movie. And mm-hmm. it probably won't be available for very long, to be honest, because they probably don't have that many copies. But yeah, like I jumped on there and ordered it. And uh, yeah, I just, it, and I, I really like this too watching this movie because i start seeing those little flourishes like i could tell that this was an earlier effort and only of like a, a year earlier but i could see that this was from the director of night of the comic because there was a a kind of cool little you know it was a jump scary type scene where um the younger neighbor popped up but then she also had like a, another kind of young a friend with her who really was more like the not exactly the valley type with the speak but definitely the the you know the stereotypical airhead california mm-hmm. blonde girl i don't know i kind of i kind of found you know those characters popping up in a horror movie like that somewhat playful i don't know <laughs> i like it well, no, and even like you say, like, you know, it's Everhart's first film, but there's definite skill uh, clear right away. I mean, right. before that scene, when we're watching her on the phone talking to the doctor and the camera cuts away and there's just some like random cuts of like the staircase and the open door to her bedroom and the empty living room downstairs. And it actually sets a nice kind of ominous tone of like, wait, what's about to happen? Is she about to be attacked by something? What's what's coming in here? Right. Like, in, I don't know how you feel about it, but like, I almost, and I thought this was brilliant because there's, you know, there is score and some underlying things, but like, it wasn't very heavy handed. It was really mostly through the selection of the shots and the editing, but just really without showing anything overly spooky or creepy or whatever. Yeah, like, you kind of get the feeling that something is watching this woman. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually one of the hardest things, I think, for horror movies to pull off. You know, we all know films that do it, but it's not often done well. Is that I would say this is a genuinely eerie film. You know, it actually right. it actually managed to accomplish that. And that's, I always love that. And we see films attempted a lot, but it's, it's not easy. It's not an easy tone to actually strike successfully. Yeah, and that's why I kind of like going back to these older movies sometimes that are a little more restrained. Because, I mean, I guess the slasher era was go- was definitely going on at this time. But it wasn't at its apex the way it would be in the more mid-80s where almost just every horror was a slasher. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I feel like you were, you know, just about anything spooky or horror-related would make a certain amount of box office, you know? and uh, And I felt like there was a little bit more of a genre and a variety you know like like for a while in the 80s even though slashers really started in the 70s you know becoming more commonplace they really just took over in the 80s and then in the 90s i want to say 
I mean, Scream brought it back, but I want to say the 90s was more dominated probably by a lot of, like, J-Horror type shit. 90s, early 2000s, you know? And then, like, of course, the portrait... The, Torture. The torture porn came out in the mid 2000s, so I think this was like a nice little spot where this movie came out where horror wasn't exactly being pigeonholed into just one thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know another film of this era that this one actually reminds me a bit on a, like on a tonal level, and I think would make a great double bill is Dead and Buried. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, Dead and Buried is actually uh, for a, you know I don't know how, if it was successful when it first came out, but that's one of the ones I, like I've always seen pop up everywhere through the DVD era. It's gotten a couple different releases. Mm-hmm. It's just about to get another new. It's uh, getting a new Blu-ray release. There you go. Soul Survivor. I, I hope this movie can get talked up enough to eventually get another release. But yeah, we we had a little bit of the uh, coffee commercial going wrong, showing that the, you know this. <laughs> This yeah, there's even a coffee commercial in this movie, folks. Come on. Yeah, the coffee commercial. Behind the scenes of a coffee commercial. I mean, what I think it's interesting that, that this is this is like a world right at a time when if a coffee commercial, if the actress can't get her lines right, they're willing to film this coffee commercial over days, apparently. Right, right. It's like, how important is this coffee commercial that they're willing to sink this much time and energy into it? I definitely know now they could have a new actress there within 45 minutes. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I guess because it was kind of the... The crux of the spot, I guess, would be this woman celebrity. I guess they're willing to hang in. And I kind of liked it, too, that, you know, she just wasn't a crazy psychic lady, whatever. They kind of threw some doubt onto her as far as being an alcoholic and, you know, not really being a very well-balanced person. You know, mm-hmm. kind of throw some doubt, like, maybe she is just crazy. and Maybe nothing is happening to this woman quite yet. You know, you don't know. Yeah. But here we get to what would be like our second big kind of like right. truly eerie moment, right? So her and the doctor went out to the park and had like a nice little, you know, romantic moment. And now he's left and she's walking back to work and she hears somebody call out her voice. You know, that's kind of like the, the sounds like the wind or something. And then we cut to just this old man in a bathrobe staring at her in the park. And it's just like that kind of imagery. That's just always kind of creepy, right? Like, right. first of all, old, let's face it, old people, creepy. We're right. not going to deny it. Um the old people look like they're confused out of place, creepier. You know, so, <laughs> well, I, th- I think definitely too. I mean, I think even now it's become a little bit of a trope or whatever. But I, I, I think it was smart, you know, in this era, you know, to go with these ghosts or whatever they are, these dead people wandering the earth. You know, I, I, I think Everhart, you know, picked the right types. You know, uh, like you had the little girl and then you have the old man. Like, you know, he did a good job of picking the right type of people that. You know, in the right setting, they wouldn't be eerie. But once you put them out of place, like little girl on a loading dock of a hospital, old man in the middle of a park, kids are playing, and he's just standing there in the bathrobe, you know, without having to go to the extreme of having a guy like in a follow staying on a roof with his dong hanging out. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I think what this and it follows both understand, though, um, you know, like you said, this one's maybe a little more subtle, but. Right. What, where I think, like, if David Robert Mitchell did see this, and if he took any, if he took a major element from this into *It Follows*, it is that just idea of like, there is something unnerving about someone that you don't know just seeming fixated on you, right? And kind of locking eyes with you, staring at you, and not breaking that concentration. And uh, yeah, there's just something about it that kind of makes your skin crawl when any any time it's, you know, you don't expect that uh, in a public park to just see some old man staring at you. I mean, well, I guess maybe if you're an attractive woman, you do, but right. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I guess, you know, you and I maybe don't have that experience. <laughs> we wouldn't have that. I, I, I get, yeah, if it's an old man or if it's a gentleman with uh, red clownish hair and a large <laughs> neck beard, then you would be very unnerved if they yeah. were staring at you. Now, yeah, here she actually, and again, we don't know the exact time frame. Maybe this was later that night from that afternoon or what. But, you know, kind of the next jump to, you know, in time or whatever. Like, she actually is banging the doctor. Mm-hmm. I mean, good for her, you know. And, you know. She could, it, she it, could it use it. Early. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she hardly gets out. And he is a doctor, so, you know. unless yeah, he's, he's got like, that man yeah, financially unless, set. Well, not only that, but you probably don't have no sexually transmitted diseases, I wouldn't think, as a doctor. He probably takes precautions and whatnot. No, he definitely, I mean, he seems like a catch, you know, as a young, handsome doctor. Yeah. Although she actually lives in a much better place than he does. Way so. better. He has an apartment, which isn't a bad apartment, like, whatever. What What do you think, Trevor? Did you think that was an apartment or a house? I took it more. No, it was a, an apartment, yeah. yeah. And, like, yeah, uh, not, like, it's a pretty small one, especially compared to how gigantic of a home she lives in. Right. Right. It just threw me off a little bit because it did have a dining room, but whatever. It doesn't have the ethical com- like compunction about sleeping with a patient, though. I'll no. tell you that. Well, she got out of the hospital. It's not yeah, like he, you know, it's not like he banged her in you know on a gurney somewhere. Yeah, you're right. He did his due diligence. He waited a couple days. He restored her to full health, and then he picked up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Why else do we get into medicine other exactly. than opportunities like this? But I gotta say, like, I don't know, like, I appreciate the chemistry these two people had. I mean, the the main, the main crux of this relationship isn't that all oh, they're falling in love or whatever. It's just you know, it, it really does help the story, you know, to, to like make it more interesting. I think that you have this budding romantic relationship, and then this person, this doctor, has to be drawn. You know, who the doctor is normally, you know, one of the most logical type people out there. He has to be drawn into this like supernatural plot you know what i mean that's like going on and here here we, here we see you know she's ta- she, maybe there is some trauma involved because she's on some pretty hardcore medications here yeah you know? i didn't quite get that move of like dumping all of your pill bottles out into the sink and then opening up one and taking it like yeah that seemed fairly disorganized but it was strange here we get some glamour shots what about that <laughs> yeah well it's funny the first time i watched this you know we had just we see her in the shower but then it's just kind of above you know the neck and above and i actually thought to myself like oh yeah this film's probably too classy for nudity um but lo and behold i only had to wait a little bit yeah Um, just a little bit and you will see some breasts coming out but yeah i mean i don't know i i think and especially when you listen when you watch this movie um it's definitely I won't even say that the movie's so low budget, but did you notice too, Trev? It really kind of, you know, especially, you know, like something like The Exorcist or whatever, like Warner Brothers is going to sit there and redo the whole soundtrack and make it sound like a movie that just came out now. But watching this movie is kind of interesting because it reminded me how rough the sound in, in movies used to really be. I mean, even studio movies. You ever notice that sometimes, Trev? You watch older movies now and you realize kind of how rough and canned and obvious the sound mix is, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, and like I said, like I'm sure it's an issue of budget here, but uh, yeah, but also it does add a certain element to it. I think sometimes that can add like an unworldly, like a you know, an otherworldly element to a horror film when yeah. the audio doesn't sound right or doesn't sound like it's you know recorded live. Right. Like it's definitely not a bad dub job or anything. It's just those rough sounds where it's like now when you when you 
see a big, you know, really any movie, the sound is very crisp and, and pristine, whereas this, like, you can hear the sound of cars in the background and, you know, the engine or whatever. It's kind of like, I don't know how you feel about it, but I like when I, I actually, because, you know, I love, like, Italian and European horror films. And most of those were recorded, like, you know, every actor was of different nationality, and they just let everyone right. speak their native language, and then would go in and dub, you know, for each market. And I actually kind of like just the sound of those films, when you can yeah. tell it's being dubbed, and nothing is recorded live. I don't know, there's just something that adds an extra element to it for me. Whereas this one really sounds like it's, you know, almost like gorilla style, you know. Well, they're being like the this coffee commercial. They're putting the mics in those coffee cans, apparently. That's what it sounds like sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By I, the way, that we saw them filming that commercial, and I'm pretty sure that boom was going to be in the shot, given how yeah. low it was in there. Yeah, no. And, yeah, it just, it really seems like this lady has some simple-ass dialogue to do in this coffee commercial. <laughs> but it seems like it's... It's really throwing her off seeing the producer there, uh, Denise, the main character, because yep. like you know this was the woman that she had the vision about or whatever. You'd think at a certain point she would just say, "Hey, could you ask that woman to step out of the room and maybe I could maybe I could fucking act over here. <laughs> I can stop seeing corpses littered about a field in my mind." But I also have to call into question Denise's producing abilities because she says at one point, she's like, it seems like she's bothered by me. So at what point would you say, hey, maybe I should just step out? Like, why not right. take it out? Like, there's got to be an assistant guy who can just take over. Mm-hmm. You think that set was built just for the coffee commercial or do you think that's a set that was there for something else? I think it was there for something else because it's, it's, it's a pretty nice and detailed set. Yeah. It's got the you know the back whatever. I found I found this. Um, excuse me. I found this kind of interesting that you know they kind of take it to this place where um, they have this conversation. I'm sure it was just the director, just you know, hey, we got kind of like a you know, I mean it's a good scene between them two, but it could if it just would have took place in a room and maybe it could have seen a little dry. And I thought this was some great staging of going up into this industrial hallway and supposed to be on this floor where, you know, nobody is and it's not finished. And you have the lady up there smoking outside the window and then looking down and having the conversation with Denise, who's who's down on the lower flight of stairs. I don't know. I just I found this for some reason this the scene caught my eye, the staging of it, blocking of it. And we also got, I mean, earlier we did see, if we were really paying attention, we saw a Christmas tree in Denise's living room, but then we also just saw um, a note on the elevator, uh, you know, since this is a TV station, it said Santa Claus auditions, and it was a nice indication that, hey, this is another Christmas horror film, actually, so if those of you who are looking for new horror movies to add to your Christmas horror repertoire in December, here you go, here's another reason to check this one out. Yeah, during the opening credits, there was like a quick glimpse of like a neon Santa Claus, but it was very quick, and it'd be easy to miss that but yeah I, I definitely and then when we finally see the interior of robin's house then you'll really know it's straight on christmas debauchery bullshit mm-hmm. can be tough to it can be sometimes you can miss that in film set in california because you know you don't have <laughs> exactly. s- the snow is the, the snow. obvious indicator but yeah I, I mean who knows maybe shane black saw this it was like, ooh, the subtle Christmasness. Because before Shane Black movies, yeah, like all Christmas movies were gun ho I mean, Gremlins, like, you can't look at one frame of that movie without knowing it's Christmas. But this one, it was really subtle, you know? 
And maybe, like, I feel like Christmas is a great time to set this because, you know, everyone's just depressed in this movie. Maybe they're just all suffering from seasonal depression. That could be, too, you know. I never knew it. Uh, I think Gremlins actually uh, taught me that uh, Christmas is the most depressing time of the year for a lot of people. I kind of, there's an element of me that kind of gets seasonal depression just because for me, I do start to get, I love the fall. Right. Um, but beyond the fall, like, I do kind of get bummed when it starts to get like dark at like 4 p.m. I feel like that's right. kind of a, a bummer. Yeah. yeah. I can't, I don't know. I kind of enjoy it now because I live in a more modest climate. So my season is more cool. It's like, mm-hmm. like my winter, I should say, is more like your fall. But I, yeah. I, I definitely got that, you know, when, uh, when when I lived in uh, Ohio and Indiana, because mm. yeah, there's like no daylight, <laughs> and then it's cold and snowy. That's an interestingly worded sign: men and equipment working. Yeah, that that was. Weird. Should be men working with equipment. Men at not work. to. I don't want to. I don't want to downplay the importance of the equipment. You know, no, but. the equipment. You know, that shit's hardcore. It does its job too. Yeah. I thought this was a great little suspense building uh, uh, elevator moment, and again, it's not going full Final Destination, but like you get the you get the feeling that something's at play here because the elevator is like it's not going to the floor she wants to go, and it just fucking has a mind of its own, you know. Yeah, I mean, maybe in an alternate reality, this film inspired four sequels, just like Final Destination did. It could have. I think definitely this movie with this malfunction elevator. Uh, influenced Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. That's probably where he. I think by the. I mean, I think the only thing that influenced Maximum Overdrive is cocaine. <laughs> Lots of cocaine. <laughs> but I could definitely see Stephen King. Like, he goes to see every horror movie and then he just takes one note of, like, mm-hmm. some shit he saw and then he writes a whole new story of it. I think by the time. By the 85 minutes of this movie's over, we'll find over 300 Hollywood films that have been. Influenced by Soul Survivor. Yeah, here we go into our. This is P two, right? It so, is. <laughs> yeah. West Bentley. Uh, <laughs> yeah, West Bentley's about to hop out from one of these uh, yeah. these posts in this parking garage. You know, he's the right age. This could have been. This could have been the first horror movie that West Bentley was taken to by his older brother or something. You never know. By the way, just for a quick aside, not that it's super relevant. It's not an eighties movie, but P two also a very underrated horror film. You. I guess this is maybe the... It is very underrated. I actually own a HD DVD of it, believe it or not. And I actually watch, and it's an underrated Christmas horror film, too. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I actually found out about P2 because I parked on P2 of a shopping mall's garage. And, like, the little things that literally say P2 or P3 or whatever on the pillars, they had special advertisements. I guess they went all around parking garages... And it was it wasn't like life size. It just was a small advertisement. But it said it basically had a picture of West Bentley leering next to a P two sign. <laughs> now I had heard an urban legend. I don't know if it's true. I had heard that uh, they had put like life size West Bentley stand ups in some parking garages as promotional material and got complaints and had to take it down. Well, and I, I want to I want to believe that's true. But I, I don't can know I'll it's... believe that because I I saw the smaller versions of the signs for sure. But I mean, it wasn't like life size. It was a pretty. It was about the size of a movie poster, I'd say. Yeah. But it, you know, it wasn't trying to fool you like the guy was really there or anything. But uh, but yeah, like I saw that and I was like, "What the fuck is this?" Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> and and then I put you know, in a couple weeks later, I start seeing trailers or whatnot. And I put it all together. 
Now, if I would have known then when I know now, believe me, I would have been ripping one of those motherfuckers down and saving it. Yeah. Well, yeah, because all that P2 merchandise really goes for a lot on the secondary market. Well, I'm just, I'm just saying just for myself, that'd be a cool thing to have. This is a creepy scene. I mean, it's never not creepy okay. to have just a you know woman by herself in a parking garage having a you know strange man in a denim jacket makes it much worse yeah. coming after her. Kind of has like kind of looks like like a Charles Bronson on like a bad day or something. You know, I was just about to say that it reminded me of a cheap second rate Charles Bronson. But this mm-hmm. one, I I feel like this this guy maybe they're just trying to amp it up a little more because all the other dead people go. So I'm not sure exactly what they are. Like they were all, t- they were obviously watching her, but they kind of stayed their distance. Whereas this guy, he was going right up to the elevator, trying to get in the elevator. So I feel like whatever's motivating these, these, these. First of all, what do you think they are, Chuck? Do you think they're ghosts, or do you think they're actual physical? Like, I think we zombies? get a. I think I think we learn later they are actual physical right. presence. Like so, yeah. I mean, I think th- I, I think for a while the film wants that to be a question and then it becomes a little more apparent later that they are not ghosts they are physically there but what calls it into question obviously is we never see anyone else notice them except for her but then you understand like well there's just nothing about them that you would notice necessarily i think this moment here is probably the moment that does remind me the most of it follows um when she's now she's talking to the doctor at this like restaurant after all these encounters and there's somebody just across the street standing there watching her and we never you know, there's no indication that this is one of those things other than they're just, you know, fascinated with her. But this this part definitely has that vibe to it. Yeah. And the guy who was trying to get in the elevator, I, I think he had the most obvious kind of Dawn of the Dead-ass bluish mm-hmm. face. But to be fair, he could have just been trying to get to the Santa Claus auditions. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Maybe because he was so white and shit. Maybe he was trying to, you know, get into the commercial, the Santa Claus commercial as a Frosty the Snowman. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Now, definitely here, the doctor, I feel like he's starting to play it off more because she's trying to kind of explain her experiences, and I think he kind of starts to play it off with the trauma, and, and they, and it is interesting with with you know it's kind of foreshadowing that does pay off later, but he starts to you know throughout the movie they they keep warning her of this thing called survivor's guilt, and they keep talking about it, you know that that sometimes. You know, when there's like a lone survivor of a tragedy, they actually might feel guilty because they survived it and all these other people didn't, and they might get depressed and take their own life. Like, what? I mean, you know, I mean, we'll see what happens when it happens. But what did you think of that when you were watching this for the first time? Well, I, w- I was really glad they brought that in because it's it's something I know about and it's something I've read about, and then. Like I said, because that first part with her and him, you know, she seems so nonchalant and cavalier about the whole, you know, idea. I like that eventually the movie did go there and bring that up as saying, like, well, maybe that's what's actually happening, you know. And then that would explain a lot about her, about the denial of what's what she's going through. And I think it's never a bad idea to insinuate that even if the film eventually reveals that, no, this is happening, you know, to at least keep her on her toes and say, hey, maybe this is a psychological horror film and this is all in her head. Right. And again, that kind of plays into, like I said, the, the heavy uh, Carnival of Souls influence. We were never quite sure exactly what level of reality you're on. Yeah, I love these scenes because there was a brief moment when she first saw this this creepy guy across the street from the restaurant. There actually was a brief moment where the doctor turned and looked, and it looked like he saw the guy, but mm-hmm. it's just he wasn't thinking anything out of the ordinary, yeah. so to speak. You know. I mean, why would you? I mean, yeah. And here we have another scene of her. Uh, 
shoving pills down her throat. <laughs> I always do try to think like putting myself in his shoes when I watch films like this. You wonder like, okay, you're this doctor, right? And like, you just met this cute girl. She was your patient. Now you're hooking up with her. And she starts telling you that she thinks maybe like dead people are following her. At, you know, at what point do, do you say like, mm, maybe it's time to break it off? Or at what point do you say like, I'm still going to let this ride out a little bit? I mean, yeah, that's hard to say. I think it really depends on the attractiveness of the woman and how much you're enjoying the sex that's going on. Because I, I think I think uh, I think uh, the source would put up with Anna De Armas talking about dead people all day long as long as he was getting what he wanted out of it. Now here we go. We were talking earlier about how okay, so you might not get nudity from Anita Skinner, right? right. But if you have a low-budget horror film and you want to have some nudity in it, who do you call? Well, you might as well call it Brink Stevens. Exactly. Because here we go, what's going on across the street. We have Robin, her, her airhead kind of blonde friend. Now a dude named Randy. And then Brink Stevens, who, like, obviously is, like... If you look we know at, why she's here. <laughs> yeah, if you look at this trio, you, like, you, she's obviously the more, I would say, professional-looking actress, you know. Not that the other girls aren't pretty, but, you know, she's obviously, you know, like a 10 where the other girls are like a 6 or 7, you know. And, yeah, and and this is, like, kind of like the era of, like, the Porkies <laughs> coming to influence <laughs> this movie. Because, like, you can't tell me this Randy guy isn't here for pure comic relief because it makes no sense that he's... He's playing strip poker with three attractive girls, and he, like, literally looks like he could be, you know, the prototype for Beavis from Beavis and Butthead. Yeah. Uh, for Twin Peaks fans will actually recognize him. That's what struck me as I watched this. He was in the original iteration of Twin Peaks as uh, Bernard Renault, one of the Renault brothers. Um, but I actually looked him up. He's actually done quite a lot. Yeah, I, I was going to say, when I looked this up, I mean, obviously we all know Brink Stevens, but actually, the you know, the, the main girl here, Robin... Who plays, you know, the the friend, uh, you know, the young friend of the main character? She actually, according to IMDb, this is her only credit. So, it's kind of weird when you see people who have bit parts in movies going to have long careers, and then you see like people who have pretty substantial roles in a movie. Really, they don't do yeah. much, you know. I'm guessing it's a safe bet though that of all the actors in this film, it actually probably it's got to be Brink Stevens that has the most credits, right? Oh yeah, by far. Yeah, because even the doctor. Actually, let me let me see what the doctor's done, but but I don't think he had a real huge resume either. And you said earlier, you said we all know Brink Stevens, and I guess you're probably right for the people who listen to this show. But uh, we should just for those who don't know, Brink Stevens is kind of you know one of the famous scream queens of the. Uh, you know, I, I feel like uh, yeah, pretty much '80s through the early 2000s, right? She kept going for quite a long time. A long time. Yeah, the doctor. If I'm looking at the right credit, because is the doctor's name Brian Richardson in this? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, he actually he went on a, a firestorm of career and it just ended. 1980, Jane Austen in Manhattan. I'm not familiar with that film, but then 81 he did The Fan, which I think is a really huge. Uh, that's another underrated one. That one is actually Michael Bean and Lauren Bacall. Really creepy. I just saw it for the first time on cable maybe a year ago. Then he did a part in Ghost Story, which I think is also hugely underrated early 80s horror movie. And then he did Soul Survivor, and that's all he's got going on. So it's very interesting, like, because, like, I think Tom Everhart cast this movie really good. 
But, yeah, like, a lot of these people just didn't go on to do much afterwards. Strange. Mm -hmm. I do, we were talking earlier about interior design, because, you know, that's how we roll. But, uh, yeah, the the inside of Jennifer's house is pretty great, too. Like, it also has that that vibe, and I don't know, just something in it. It's not quite, I I think, like, one of my favorite things about that kind of time period is, like, sunken in living rooms, where there's, like, kind of a step down into a seating area. Yeah. And uh, that's not necessarily the case here. Uh, maybe a little bit, but it just has that vibe to it. it. Has that feel to it with like the brick wall behind it. And yeah, I love those bi-level, tri-level houses where there's all kind of different step-down living rooms and little platforms and shit. Mm-hmm. I love it. But yeah, basically what happened was Denise came over, and then I really don't know why anybody like everybody started trying to throw their clothes on and shit from the strip poker game, put their you know their dongs back in their pants and all this. But, like, I really don't even know why, because it's not like this woman was really going to bust these kids and tell their parents. Yeah, like, and if she, anything, you'd think, like, Denise would want to be around more people. Right, exactly. Especially what's going on. And that kind of ends up being the downfall, really, that, um, you know, all these other, you know, the Randy and the other two girls got ran off. Because maybe with more people around, you know, the shit wouldn't go down the way it's about to go down right now. Oh, I thought this Rotary was, phone. It is. I'm trying to remember, I don't. Eh, maybe I think I think I did have a rotary phone like when I was real real young. Like maybe up my grandma's house had a rotary phone. I remember using yeah. it, you know, but I don't think I never had one myself. And then we got the touch tone, like you know, whatever it was, probably early mid eighties. But yeah, but you, you got to help me out with this, Trev, because I really didn't get what was going on here at all. Like, like. Denise passes out because actually she mixed uh, prescription painkillers or whatever the fuck she's on, mood, whatever, altering things with a beer. So that knocked her out. And then Robin sneaks across the street to go in Denise's house, which I didn't really get what's going on. Like, did you think, like, was she going in to get booze or like what was going on? No, no, no. So she was actually leaving to go meet back up with the friends because Denise passed out. So she calls them and says, okay, now we can hang back out. And it's, I don't think, yeah, I don't know if it's just not clear. Maybe you have to be watching that right size screen or something. But when she steps out of her front door, she notices that Denise's front door is open. Oh, that's what it is. So she goes to close it or see if something is going on over here. Like, why is the door open? She's just basically checking on the house. Because, like, she goes over and she's kind of casual at first. Yeah, I just didn't know the door's ajar. Because, like, she's so casual. Like, she is kind of looking around, but then she eats a marshmallow in the kitchen. So, like, that's why I thought maybe, like, shit was, like, not, not that serious or scary here. Yeah. But yeah, talk about it. Talk about a bad rate. Oh, there's that clock, that cat clock. It's an ominous sign. Now, I was wondering about this. You know, this being a lower budget movie, was it really raining or was that rain machines? I wonder if they had those resources. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I believe that they had those resources. I wouldn't think that they would. But then again, it's hard to like maintain a lot of shots while it's raining because that means it has to rain for years and years. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we have, unfortunately, the poor fate of Robin, which it's literally a ghoul. And this is kind of getting back to what you were saying, Trev, that now these aren't just apparitions. These aren't just ghosts. These are real physical beings, whether they're zombies or just whatever they are. Because it actually grabs Robin and actually drowns her in the swimming pool in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And... uh do you think maybe the ghoul or whatever thought that was Denise, maybe? 
Yeah, that's, I mean, that I couldn't tell. That We were talking about like things that we can't quite figure out. Yeah. Is this just the wrong place at the wrong time, and whoever would have been in the house would kill, or is it killing her because it needs to want it wants to have someone else to go after uh denise i don't know it's it's a little nebulous but it also is a horror film that feels like it needs a body count so and here we go it is what it is i guess right it's actually it is a it is a bummer moment right it's you know you know a horror movie is effective when you actually feel like oh i didn't want that character to die that's too bad i'm not gonna lie the first time i watched this movie that was my favorite character of the movie up Mm -hmm. until this point honestly yeah, here we go. Denise sees the old man standing on her front porch. And to me, this is where... And I guess maybe we are coming a little bit into the home stretch, But this is where, to me... Yeah, we got roughly exactly 30 minutes left in the running time. I think, to me, this is really where it's like shit got taken up a notch. And it was like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it was on. You know, she starts calling I- the police, trying to get help, you know. And I think this is where we definitely see that, you know, for all the comparisons to Final Destination, and you can definitely see where those come from, this is where it really breaks from that mold, because like you just said, we see that, you know, Denise is not the only one in danger. She might be the one that cheated death, but this this is like a bigger problem now. Anybody who kind of gets in the way of these things is a, is yeah. a potential victim. And whereas Final Destination really was a cheating of death scenario, because like Devin Sawa got off the plane right before it took off, I think this is more, almost more like death is like, oops, I fucked up, I let somebody live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not even really the person, like their actions, because she was on the plane like everybody else, you know? Yeah. It's just like, oh, you were supposed to die and something went wrong. Now, obviously, this is just all our speculation and whatnot. But when you get into these movies that are all about cheating death and death as a character and, you know, the Grim Reaper and all this, what do you what do you what do you kind of make of, uh, you know, with the mythos with this, Trev? Do you think a lot of this genre of horror of cheating death is about kind of like almost like a time travel type scenario in terms of like if the wrong person lives that like fate or whatever destiny of the whole world might be, you know, swing in the wrong direction or something? What do you kind of what do you make of that? I've never really thought about it that philosophically, but I do think it's a great idea with a lot of potential. And I mean, from the first time I saw Final Destination, I thought it was perfect because, you know, as someone who lived through a car accident that I was injured in and had to have, you know, some work, you know, you do always you have those thoughts later of like, well, boy, how close was I to death? Right. And well, the ones and I think even if you're not in a serious accident like I was, you know, just anything like how close have you always been to just taking the wrong step or getting delayed a little bit and having something bad happen? And that's, that's happening to us constantly, you know, this, this like butterfly effect idea that, you know, we're, we're probably cheating death all the time and not even realizing it. And this idea that what happens when fate doesn't work out the way it's supposed to, if you believe in those concepts. And I just think it's a strong thematic element that really works in these films. Um, and as you said, if you, if you need to like rationalize it, then yeah, I'm sure just say hey, death is like, He's got a job, right? And when he screws right. up, it's just like anyone else. If you don't do something right at work, you got to fix it the next day, you know? Yeah, like, <laughs> it's funny you say that about how we're cheating death all the time. Because, I mean, I've never, like, legitimately had a premonition before something bad happened. But, like you said, like, uh, there's been a number of times in particular, like, when I'm driving or whatever. And, like, I get this weird sen- sensation that's like... Um, like, if you've ever been punched in the nose, 
while it's like really cold outside how bad it hurts it's almost like mm-hmm. like a, it's a certain type of pain and like not that i feel the physical pain like the anguish but i kind of feel just a little tinge of that in my face and my nose and like whenever i get that i get like this weird feeling like something is on the verge of happening and like it, like you know i always slow down or, or double check where i am and what's going on and i and for some reason i always i really only ever get that well mostly get that when i'm driving there's a few times when i'm like walking along somewhere perilous or like where you could fall down or something i kind of got that feeling too but that is interesting you know not just in a horror movie type of way but just in a life type of way you know yeah well and i think you know uh oh here's dwight yokum as the uh yeah i have to say these, <laughs> these police officers were shitty because the doctor is trying to follow up on what happened, you know, when she called the police and everything, and the cops are just like, Ugh, you know, like, like they go into the story of, like, it was basically the ghoul who uh, uh, killed Robin. They found this guy, like, like they basically think Denise is crazy because they're like, yeah, like, that guy was found dead in a car. Like, there's no way she saw him because he was already dead type thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but I don't know. To me, that's, sh- that's shit police work because, like, Later on, the coroner kind of starts to solve the shit, and, and the coroner character is kind of odd because he really pops up like really late in the film. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, just cops so like, won't investigate anything. Like, so I said, Dwight Yoakam. It's more like a cross between Dwight Yoakam and Dan Bacadal. Yeah. And then we have this uh, like Serpico is the other detective who pops. Yeah, his head Serpico in comes in. Like that's nice to see. Yeah, um, well, didn't Serpico come out like 1974 or something? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and here we are in '83, and Serpico still roaming the streets. <laughs> but to go back to the uh, the the death idea, and you know, I think you know, like I said, yeah, the same idea. I don't necessarily have premonitions, but I, I can't. I think anybody would be a liar if they said anytime you take a flight, at least once before okay. the flight, you have the idea of like, well, I wonder if this is going to crash. You know, like. Yeah. It's just kind of, you know, we can't get away from that as like a, you know, it's a, it kind of a ever-present thought in our head. And if you look at statistically with how many commercial, you know, flights in um well, I don't know. I, I guess it could go either way, but it, it's rare, I would say, that an American airliner has a crash, even though it does Oh, happen. yeah. No, the flight, the flying is like amazingly safe, but there's something about it that it's the horrificness of I think it's the, I think what still freaks us out about flying even though it's it's pretty damn safe is the the helplessness of if something does go wrong you have no control over it and it's just game over you know yeah but i definitely i don't know i always feel more safe driving on the highway you know as long as it's not a crowded highway of course but, yeah, but that's interesting, right? Because your chances are of something bad happening are way higher there. Right. But you you feel in control, right? Right. Whereas, like when you're on like surface streets or whatever, I hate that feeling of somebody could just pull out from a street. You know what I mean? Without checking, like looking left or right or whatever. I hate that shit. So like, but and I think it's the same way with flying. It's like you know that you're safer, but because you can't do anything, you're more likely to feel something bad is going to happen. Yeah, no offense, Dr. Brian Richardson, but your apartment's pretty dumpy compared to her yeah, home. Yeah, and, like, that's what had me thinking that maybe her home was, like, something they rented out for a few days. And maybe his home was really, like, where the director or producer lived. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, definitely shit was way more reasonable back then. But, like, her house now would be, a, I think, in L.A., depending on the area, of course. But I think at the very minimum, that's, like at least like a three million dollar house depending on where it's at 
But he now, does... what I do like about this character, you were talking earlier about like the humor that pops up. What I yeah. like about this character is even as things are really unraveling for her and everything, she does still have a sense of humor occasionally. Right. And will like make little jokes with him. And I think it just keeps her likable throughout the whole film. Um, you could obviously play her dour through the whole thing, and it, it would be appropriate. But I think we're more on her side because she is, you know, occasionally trying to, like, you know, break through it a little bit and joke around about things. And I think that's kind of the smartness of uh, Tom Everhart there was he kind of realizes that by putting a little kind of off-kilter humor into it, like, you're making it more of a pop horror film that, you know, maybe is a little more enjoyable to watch. And it's not just for, like, the, the, the gruesome ghouls who, like, just watch every horror movie that comes out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, an, it's definitely an adult horror film, which, you know, is kind of a missed thing. Yeah. Everything now is, uh, you know, young people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, talking about Tom Everhart, he did Soul Survivor. The following year, he did Night of the Comet. Then he did... It took him a few years, like four years, before his next movie came out. But he did he did this movie. I don't know. I want to ask you if you saw this movie, Trev. It's called The Night Before, but I think I think it was called something else when I saw it on Cave. Yeah, it was called. No, it wasn't. I always thought this movie had a, a different title, but maybe it's always been called The Night Before. But kind of after Keanu got Keanu Reeves got famous from Bill and Ted, this movie popped up on cable a lot. And it's like uh, him and Lori Laughlin have to go to like the prom, but it's like oh that, yeah, I remember that film. Yeah, yeah, it's like that type of thing. Like they get lost in like the inner city, and they have to go mm-hmm. on this adventure and all this shit. Yeah, that used to be a cable all the time when I was a kid. I know. So he did that in '88, and then also in '88, it was obviously he shot these movies some time apart, but they just happened to come out. He actually did a movie with Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley called Without a Clue. And I oh, I love Without a Clue. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, basically, the um, the uh, the synopsis is a drunken Sherlock Holmes is really just a cover for the real detective who is actually Doctor Watson. Yeah, it's a great premise. I don't. You've never seen that film? I've never seen. I never even. Come it's across really it good. Cable. It's 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 one of the first. Like as a kid, it's one of the first movies I remember. Like taking an established kind of property and like doing a clever twist on it. You know, which we see that a lot nowadays. But the idea of saying. Oh, Sherlock Holmes was never real. It was just a front, and Watson was the genius, and he created this character and needs this kind of bumbling fool to play the part. It's it's really good, and of course, you know, as you would expect, something happens to where Watson is incapacitated, and now this idiot has to really play the part of Sherlock Holmes. Um, but yeah, it's like one of the first, definitely one of the first Michael Caine comedies I saw. Um, but yeah, I would definitely recommend checking that out. Yeah, and then a year after that, he did Gross Anatomy, which is like one of those... I don't know what it is. I don't know if it, I can't remember now if it's Mill Creek or something. But I got the Blu-ray. It's like one of them four-dollar Blu-rays you can get. And I just I just got it because it was from the director of Night of the Comet and Matthew Modine. But it's actually a pretty good comedy about medical school. Matthew Modine, Daphne Suniga, young Todd Field is in it. Christine Lottie. It's actually a kind of a good movie because it shows like the diff- you know how hard it is to go through medical school. And they're really unfortunately. Uh, well, he did have one more big movie after that. A couple years later, he did Captain Ron with uh, mm-hmm. Kurt Russell, which I enjoyed a lot as a kid. But I don't know what happened. Like, his career really fizzled out. And the only movie he really did, he did a TV movie where he reunited with Kelly Maroney. And it had Joe Mantegna called Face Down. And I've been trying to, you, you can easily get the VHS. I was trying to get, there was like some kind of like, I don't know. It's kind of like a film noir movie. There was a DVD, but it was like overseas and... I can never, it was like, you had to get it from Greece or some shit. I could never get it. 
And Speaking of face down, I don't want to tell this coroner's business, but why is that corpse face down on the table back there? That's not necessarily. <laughs> yeah, the coroner, he keeps the face down, ass up. And then years and years, I, well, I guess 10 years after face down, unfortunately, he made Naked Fear, which is actually a movie that's kind of been like really ridiculed a lot, unfortunately. And it's about um, people hunting like naked women in the woods i i don't know i've seen if this is the movie i think it is i've seen parts of it and unfortunately it's not really good yeah boy with that surprising with that synopsis it sounds well it just sucks because the guy had a pretty rocking career for a decade plus yeah interesting you brought up uh i mean i hadn't thought of that film in so long the uh the night before Mm. And uh, that's almost like a whole 80s subgenre, isn't it? Like the You're couples, right. like a wild night out, you know, you have like Into the Night and Blind Date and uh, just those kind of films. Then, like. then, then the teen versions like that and then like License to Drive and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, Tom Everhart, he's definitely got some. I hope more of his stuff comes out on Blu-ray, to be honest with you. Some of it, I don't even know if it's on DVD, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm always down for like a you know a rediscovery of Captain Ron. Oh yeah, I love Captain. Which I sometimes like to watch and pretend is an Escape from New York prequel. Yeah, <laughs> Kurt Russell, man, he can make anything seem good. Me and my friend, the way we were last time I watched Captain Ron, we were having like a Kurt Russell marathon, and we were watching that, and we were talking about, can you imagine that film? Make that same film, but swap the roles and have Kurt Russell play the dad and have Martin Short play Captain Ron. And the thing is, that would still be an awesome movie. Like it would be like I would totally be down for seeing that version too. I think it would just be a more, even though Captain Ron really is family oriented and enjoyable for young kids. I think if you flip the roles like that. It would really uh, Martin Short being Captain. Ron, I, I think I think it really would be more kid friendly, you know. At that point, it would probably be a lot wackier too. But maybe that yeah. Clifford vibe, you know. Right, that's what I was thinking. Although you say Captain Ron's family friendly, but I don't know when the last time I watched it is. But there's a uh, more nudity in it than you would think. Really? See, I saw it in the theater when it came out, and then every time I saw it was like on like you know over the air TV. Or cable, well, not basic cable where shit was censored. So, yeah, maybe I need to get the uncut Captain Ron experience going again. So, don't let all our Captain Ron talk or anything make you feel that there's nothing happening in the film anymore. Um, there's actually, a, there's this point, actually a lot of important shit we yeah, just things <laughs> are actually our way through. White ramping up in that the doctor is really starting to kind of come to believe this story based on the evidence he's seeing in terms of, you know, talking to the coroner and uh, hearing about these. these you know supposedly dead you know people that are actually have inserted themselves into her life and now we get into kind of an interesting character right this cab driver um which feels like depressingly (laughs) modern i suppose but yeah like (laughs) this might as well just be an uber i mean and i i didn't know uber was really like raping everybody out there but you know (laughs) But yeah, this and it's funny because when I saw this, you know, I only seen this movie for the first time. I think maybe a week, week and a half ago, I found this a little far fetched. And then I did some, some reading of some news headlines, and I thought, oh wait, I think this shit really goes on all the time. Oh yeah. yeah. So he's uh, so what we're talking about is this cab driver's driving Denise around, and he kind of purposely puts on this radio program with him, kind of talking about like filthy sex stuff, and he's laughing at it. And then he starts asking her about like her sexual, you know, proclivities and everything while she's in the back seat. Yeah, and... this total stranger that he's expecting to pay him and whatever for a ride. 
But yeah, we, we did kind of gloss over. Uh, and what is, this guy has a. I, uh, I want to get back to the plot, but this cab driver's really grabbing my attention. He almost <laughs> has like a, a weird, like. I don't know, like a Richard Dreyfus vibe going on a little well, bit. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, I can see it. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but yeah, the, the doctor, the, the crux of when he talked to the coroner, the coroner gave him the information that, like, they're getting a lot of corpses that the blood is draining down into the legs, which normally doesn't make any sense because, of course, you know, you, you don't you don't stand up and you don't walk mm-hmm. when, when you're dead. But he's getting this. And then the guy, the, the corpse who had actually killed Robin, they recovered his body, and, and the cops didn't think he had anything to do with anything because he was found dead in a car. But the, the coroner realized that he was covered in mud and had been going through the woods and doing all this shit. And then also the blood in the legs, so he was walking around. So yeah. at this point, Denise, she doesn't even know that Robin's really dead, right? No, she just, she just uh, she's like missing. Yeah, and she's looking for her you know, across the street. And she sees her. By the way, I just was on IMDb and I just noticed we keep calling her Robin, but that's the actress's name. The character's, oh, is name, is, uh, Chris, the character's name is Christy. Okay. That is so weird. I had that so reversed in my head. Well, that just proves what a great performance, right? You saw no difference between the performer <laughs> <Right>. and the... <laughs> I the whole time, people, the two people who are going to watch this and know this movie, they probably own the Blu-rays. Yeah. They're like, who the fuck well, is yeah, Robin? We definitely apologize to Robin Davidson if she's listening. Uh, yeah, you know, sorry. But, but do you see where my mistake comes in play when you show somebody as a ghoul and right next to it <laughs> on IMDb? <laughs> Yeah, Christy Cutler is is the name. It's funny, the 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 cabbie, is, he goes by a few different names. He's either Stephen V. Isbell or Steve Isbell. I wonder why he needed two different variations of his name. I'm pretty sure. So this cabbie pulls over because he sees, you know, now the reanimated corpse of uh, Christy on the side of the road. And I have a feeling that guy would not care at all that she's dead. Mm-hmm. I think that's I, in a weird way, I think he probably would enjoy it more. Yeah, the the cabbie sees Christy on the side of the road and he pulls over to try to hit on her. And, you know, there's definitely uh, uh, assault type vibe going on because before he approaches her like he looks around to see if anybody's coming around that's mm-hmm. a that's a really bad sign yeah he's cannon fodder he's the kind of one where you throw in because you know we can have him get killed and we don't feel bad at all but i mean even, even though it you know we're talking about how sleazy the cabbie is and all that like to me like that was also you know the humor coming in that like the the movie's ramping up with the you know the seriousness now. You know uh, Christy has been killed and all this, and but but we throw in just for no reason. We throw in a sleazeball cappy. <laughs> <laughs> and this is pretty much, I would say, the beginning of the climax here, right? Where mm-hmm. the, where the doctor he just realizes something's wrong because he sees this cab pulled over with the doors open to it and shit. He goes over. He actually finds a gun in the cabbie's glove box. Which that's understandable. I, used to, you know, oh, yeah. supposedly cab drivers always got robbed and shit. I could see that. I just saw his the cab driver's name, which we saw in his little ID card, was Thomas Skinner, and I just was oh the main actress's name is Anita Skinner. I wonder if that was just a little onset joke. Yeah, that's funny. Oh, that's a nice old record player. Yeah, you get some a little bit of a creepy vibe going on with the music playing in the background. 
Now, is that a, like a house robe, or is she just wearing regular clothes? Or is that like a dress? I think it's a house robe. Yeah, like the doctor here, he sees the cabbie who's really mortally wounded at this point. He's already dead. He jumps down to try to help him, but I don't know. I was like, well, he is a doctor. He would try to help somebody who he thought was hurt, but mm-hmm. then again, like, you know, he's kind of contaminating the shit out of the crime scene by touching everything here in the cab. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because you say he's a doctor and he would help, but what he doesn't do then is call the police or anything. He just no. takes the takes the gun and drives off. So. Right. His morality only goes so far. Exactly. Well, to be fair, it's not like he had a cell phone, so. That's true. They're right. You're right. I'm taking. I'm taking my modern, you know, mm-hmm. crap and putting it into an older film. So. Quit being so millennial. <laughs> Although I'm pretty sure the taxi would have a radio in it. It would. Probably back to the dispatch, but. Hey, you guys have a really, really scuzzy cab driver working for you? I think he's dead. <laughs> I've had this, this cab driver stabbed to death, but he, his <laughs> pants were half down. <laughs> his name's Thomas Skinner. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like Hooper from Jaws. You better come get him. He does. Now, here, here is the signal to me that shit was about to go down, because now she's putting on the sweater that we saw on the kind of the... The yep. flash yeah. forward originally. That, yeah, uh, so it's like, you know, that if how much are you paying attention, right? Does it start to come back to you and do you start to see the, the cycle forming? That's what I always like about those flash forwards is, you know, paying off the observant viewer. Right. So here we have, and I like, I'll tell you what, I like the way this movie kind of fakes you out. Because, you know, now we saw the doctor, he's, he got proactive. I wouldn't say he solved the mystery because there's a lot of supernatural shit you can't solve. But he finally got the evidence from the the face down ass up corner that you know this is there's something going on. So like he's running into the house with a gun. Like I thought him and Denise were going to be in it till the end. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And then boom, out of nowhere, uh, fucking Christy or Kirsty, whatever her name is, comes out fucking all zombie fire with the knife and just fucking gets the doctor right. And I'm telling you, I like I don't know. Maybe I'm easy to fake out at this point because. So many modern horror films telegraph everything, but but that one got me. Like I didn't. No, that's see great, that and I think it's like because he doesn't even like you said. Like it's one thing to have him die this like at this point in the film, but he doesn't even put up a fight or anything. It's no. pretty like it's he quick. rushes in, like you said, full hero mode, and it's just like oh, never mind. It's yeah. it, that's it. Never even gets the chance to be the hero. Never even gets the chance to. He doesn't even see uh, see Denise again. You know, Mm-mm. doesn't. Like, it's just he finds Christy and is dead. Bam. And that, that that shot of um, Christy, like the zombified Christy, with the you know the low shot looking up at her, is is really chilling too. And, and it kind of has like a like a Fulci Argento vibe almost to it. See, the way I, she's lit. Yeah. To, yeah. yeah, I felt that too when I saw it. And in, in that that zombie up angle picture, that's also the actress's IMDb headshot. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so here we come. Now, now we see the cabbies coming back. So. It's not just one ghoul at a time, like, you know, whoever's dead and is near, um, you know, I'm assuming it's people that die near uh, Denise, because they did mm-hmm. explain, like, quickly, like, the little girl was missing or whatever from the morgue or whatever, and uh, and originally that, that old man who killed uh, Christy, uh, he, he, he actually did legitimately die of a heart attack in the woods, but obviously he came back to life, so... I'm yeah. guessing it's just anybody who dies in a 
you know, yeah, well, if you think about it, like, death is using them as instruments, it so it just needs to get a supply where it can, right? right. And it's, well, what are the bodies that are in the in the general area of her, you know? And, and I, here we get, like, a tracking shot of L.A. at night. Right. And, uh, you know, it's like we've talked before about how I think you and I both love movies that take place in New York in the 80s. Right. Um, but I like, you know, L.A. has that same vibe to it. I'm just it always does. interested in seeing, like, L.A., you know, at this time at, the, at night in the 80s. And it's really interesting, too, because, you know, L.A. is obviously one of the largest and busiest cities in the country and probably the world to some extent. And then, like, this is, like, where I kind of, you know, like, there was jump scare moments or whatever earlier in the film. But to me, this is where the film got the scariest to me, was she's driving through, you know, a large city. There's nobody really around. You know, the streets are pretty empty. And, like, she literally just jumped into a car, like, nothing on her, nothing, whatever, you know, no purse, mm-hmm. no money, no nothing. She's just driving a car, and, like, because obviously she doesn't believe anybody's going to believe her, because they haven't up until this point. Mm-hmm. And I just like that, to me, that's scary, driving in a populated city in a car that's just going to run out of gas eventually. <laughs> you know what I mean? And this is like, you know, people sometimes criticize fake out moments in horror films. But this is an example of a really good one, I think, here. Right. With the moment here where, uh, first of all, the idea that it keeps flashing to the mannequin, right, is really effective, right. too, kind of drawing that kind of parallel. But here, when the car, you know, the windows are a little fogged up now from her getting worked up, and then the car is suddenly surrounded, and we're sure it's the dead coming for her. And that just turns out to be <laughs> this, like, motley gang. Yeah, and, and Zach Galifianakis there. Apparently. Yeah, and this is supposed to be a legit gang, but it do, it does have um, it's kind of got like I don't know, especially for L.A. gang, it's really unusual because it's like yeah, it's like it's like three, it's it's like one guy who kind of looks like a biker, shoreman, docks yeah. worker, another one guy like who a, just like a male nurse apparently. Yeah, one guy's like a male nurse could 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 work in you know. In a, in a department store or something. The other guy is maybe like I don't know. He's he's kind of like a welcome back Cotter type, the sweat hog Italian guy. And then you actually do have a famous, or I guess he would become later famous actor with uh, Leon as the gang leader is what he's credited as. So, if people don't know that he was famous, he also played. Uh, the black Jesus, the very controversial black Jesus, I think it was in the Madonna like a prayer video. You remember that show? <laughs> I do now that you said it. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, so she, you know, she she flashes the gun at them, whatever, and they're just like, "Hey, lady, like we were just joking around, you know, we didn't really mean to like fuck with you or whatever." So yeah, and then she just runs onto a bus, and yeah, here we are. Now we've maybe she up. should ask them for help. Yeah. Could have been her protectors. They could. I think my temptation, if I was her, would be to go to a very public place because you have to wonder. Right. Do the do do the dead want her so bad that they would grab her in like say you know a department store or a theater? Yeah, just anywhere where there are people. But I mean, obviously, too, like those places are going to you know close down mm-hmm. or whatever and become deserted too. Now, I will say the first time you watch this film, I think this twist, which we're about to spoil for people, I suppose to a certain degree, but. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really actually effective, but it made me feel like an idiot for not seeing it coming. You know, right. and that, that's always to me that's always an effective twist where it's like, oh, how did I not see that? Oh, the movie actually played me pretty well because they're actually they set this up pretty heavily earlier, but long ago enough that you kind of forgot about the setup. Right, saw, which is smart. 
right when we saw the actress, the psychic actress, kind of you know looking at a razor, and uh, you know it's just it happens so quick in the movie too that it doesn't really dwell on you, and then so you're not thinking about it at this point. Yeah, and she actually ends up holding Denise at gunpoint, and then yeah, the reveal that she slit her own wrist. And that's a good uh, makeup effect too. It was really good. Yeah, I just glanced over to get a closer look at it. It was nice. She she actually kills Denise because she I I think with her being psychic, she kind of realizes that one way or another, this this loop has to be closed, so to speak. Is that kind of what you got from it, Trev? Yeah, and you know one thing I really like about and I, I don't know how much you took note of it to uh, go is the the look on Denise's face in her final moments. There's yeah. she kind of says this like she accepts it. You know, yeah. it's like she's she's ready for this to be done, and she gets that she cheated death, and it's it's her time. And I think she's just tired. She's just tired of all this. You know. Yeah, and, and I think really with, with the ghouls or whatever they are with what they did. I mean, if you really think about it, they ruined, you know, especially now we, we show all the different bodies, all the different characters who died throughout the movie and whatnot. Like, that whole experience, made it literally made her life a living hell. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, what do you think of this this end, Goat? Because, I mean, first of all, I, I, so I have a couple. It's, it's interesting that I can love a movie so much but not be totally sold on the very ending. Right. But I, I do it think ru- that, first of all, I the wrong way, too. Yeah, I think this scene goes on a little too long. I think when you're like ready for the movie to be done, this this denouement hangs on a little past its welcome. It hangs and then on, I, yeah, it hangs on past its welcome, and it's also it's cool at first because you're seeing all the bodies, of everybody that dies. But then, mm-hmm. like, yeah, this needed to end about thirty seconds quicker. Well, and I also think it betrays the concept of the film to a certain right. degree. That I, I get they want to end with like a little cute little button and a little final scare. But I was just thinking that all you needed to do to make this work was earlier, like when the coroner was talking to the doctor, he should have just said something like, oh yeah, I was just in a car accident but I walked away, you know, and just give us some indication that he recently cheated death and then I could buy into this a little more, right? But as it is, I'm like, why are they coming after him now? I don't, you know. Well, yeah, to, to, to explain for people who haven't seen the movie or whatever is... The coroner, who really, he was, I mean, he he wasn't figuring it out earlier in terms of really what was going on, but he was figuring that there was some foul play with these bodies and what was going on with that, and it made no sense. And it's kind of like at the end when we have all the main characters laid out on the slabs or whatever, and like that obviously, not to break balls, but that obviously was not a real morgue. <laughs> it was like the basement of office building or something, but still, like, um, you know, he realizes that all these bodies have this anomaly with it. The only way I can excuse it, Trev, because really what I could would kind of love the movie ending on is the note that there's this guy who, this coroner, who figured this shit out, so to speak, but nobody believes him. And it's just, just one of those mysteries that kind of vanish in the thin air. But I think, obviously, everybody wants that Carrie ending where they, you know, they actually had uh, Christy pop up off the thing. You know, yeah. behind him, and then it cuts the black, insinuating you know they're going to kill him next. I think what it's trying to say is he knows too much, type thing. Yeah, but, I can buy into that. Plus, get but it. I, I mean, I'm sure their motivation and that's their justification and and just getting that last little like creepy scare moment. But I just like the idea that all these bodies of all these dead people and whatever that were walking around are just have just now gone dead and limp. You know what I mean? I, even on that level, I think like, I, look, not to tell Tom Everhart his business, he's a better director than I am. But uh, 
that like the, so the last image you said is, is Christy rising up behind him, and I just wonder, well, why wasn't it Denise? Like, why right. should like, she's the character we've been with this whole time? Wouldn't it be a more striking, you know, final moment if she rises up now? Um, or but maybe they just thought Christy was the was the creepiest looking one, which I can't, you know, yeah. dispute. But. Or maybe even the doctor, because the doctor actually knew the coroner, so maybe mm-hmm. it's like more terrifying. Or why not all of them? Like, yeah. wouldn't it be cool if all four of them rose up? I mean, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So yeah, but I mean, I'm not going to get to whatever. Yeah, about you know, look, little... the final ten seconds of the film don't ruin what is otherwise, as we said, uh, over and over, and really? we maintain still like a real undiscovered gem of the genre. So yeah, man, I I gotta say, I mean, obviously, you know, not just for the purposes of this podcast, but just in my life, I'm still you know rediscovering gems of that, you know, because you. Because you, you get to the point sometimes that you see so much shit that you don't think you can discover anymore. Yeah, like, it blew me away, dude. Just kind of how, we, you know, both of us stumbled on this movie recently. And and just another favorite. You know, I could easily see me pulling this out to watch this every two years or so. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and this is why people should support labels like Code Red and, you know, like Vinegar Syndrome and stuff. Is that you can get into a mindset like you just said, thinking, oh, I've seen it all. And that these companies are somehow still finding these little like undiscovered right. things and pulling them out, and and that's the importance of curation too, right? Of like a, a curated, you know, uh, service or something rather than just you know the same crap that all the studios pump out. Agreed. When we when we have people looking for the small things and trying to make sure movies don't get lost over time, uh, you can still find some nice things. It's interesting. I don't know about you, go, but sometimes I just get online or look through books of like old movie posters, and it's kind of. It's interesting and actually fairly depressing how many movies just kind of aren't known anymore and just go I away. Agree. I agree. And you think about how much work so many people put into a film, and even you'll find films that have like big stars in them. You know, like you like think of um the, I don't know for some reason the mind the name just popped into my head is someone like Elliot Gould, right? Right. We all know Elliot Gould movies, but go look them up, and I guarantee you there's a bunch of Elliot Gould films that are now just like totally forgotten to time well well, yeah because they a lot of those came out and literally played for a week or two and that was it Mm -hmm. like there is a movie uh just i would really urge people to go through like imdb because because i did this for years and years and this is how i discovered a lot of cool shit um there's like like look over over whatever you know your favorite actor is that's kind of been around a while you know and, like, you'll find shit that, you know, that were studio releases, by the way. These had marketing campaigns. That, like, I found all kinds of uh, Michael Keaton shit. Um, trying to trying to find the name of it real quick. Oh, yeah. There's a movie called, which for years I never knew existed until I seen it on cable or maybe I rented it or something. But a movie called Touch and Go with Michael Keaton where he actually plays a professional hockey player. Mm-hmm. And uh, Maria Conchita Alonso is his, like, is this woman that he meets, and she, and she has, uh, and she has like a young son, and they get in this relationship, and it's really just kind of like a, you know, a slice of life, like whatever type movie. But I was just like, fuck, I never knew Michael Keaton made a movie where he was a, you know, an NHL hockey player. You know, like it was interesting to me. So I would really, you know, find that that avenue of either an actor or director that you like and really like look over their whole filmography online and see if there's some shit you can, you know, cause, cause you know, and sometimes you, you find a lot of stuff that's kind of just an enjoyable one time watch and whatever. But sometimes you find some shit like me and Trev did with this. And it's just like, wow, like this is in our collections now. And it's probably going to be a movie that we're going to recommend to a lot of people over the years. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of cool. 
Yeah, that's uh, you know, like if you're if you're a true film lover, you know, obviously you and I both rewatch a lot of movies, but right. dedicate some of that time to finding some really like lesser known stuff and just finding the the the, the undiscovered joys out there. Yeah, because I mean, there's only. You know, and especially I kind of realize this as as I get older and whatnot, like, there's only so much attention you should be, you know, I get it, young people, they live in the present because that's all they know, so to speak, but there's only so much you can pay attention that you can play, you know, pay to, like, the current stuff, because, I mean, I, you know, I've seen, I've seen a lot of, like, uh, really cool movies in the last month or so in the theater, I kind of went back to going, and uh, that's great and everything, but, like, you know, still, it's it's more interesting, or you'll you'll I think you'll feel more rewarded if you kind of pick from like everything that's been out there for a long time. You know what I mean? Instead of just picking what's uh, what's uh, you know available right this second, either at the theaters or on Netflix or whatever. So yeah, so that's mm-hmm. what that's what the 1980s movie Graveyard's all about. Let's dig these fuckers up, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like every now and then, you know, we gotta we gotta get the rating spike. We gotta cover some charles bronze which is fun too i don't want to make it seem like you know we cover shit just or whatever but uh you know it's 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 very cool that the first episode we ever did uh me and Corey, we did the terminator and i swear to i swear to god every week somebody downloads the terminator at least one person usually more but it's also cool like when you see on itunes that somebody's like hey i found this podcast and i just thought it was cool that they covered the chocolate war you know so Mm -hmm. so yeah that's definitely where uh, kind of my energy and passion for uh, doing this and continuing this is coming from. So, everybody, thank you. I hope you're having a great Shocktober. Um, if you need some more shit to listen to, maybe you're an X-Men fan. Do you like X-Men movies? Well, then, or maybe you just like, maybe you don't like X-Men movies. Maybe you hate X-Men movies, but you like X-Men comic books. Well, then this podcast will be great for you, too. Check out Days of Future Podcast, Examining the X-Men Starring our good buddy here, Trev 3K, and his buddy Joe. What, what what's kind of like going on in the world of X Men, real quick, that you guys have been covering lately? Uh, you know, things are kind of like uh, low on the uh, movie front right now. Mm. But it, as we're going, as we're in October now, we're gonna soon see the premiere of the new X Men show, Gifted, on Fox, which uh, neither Joe or I are excited about, <laughs> but we are. <laughs> committed to watching and reviewing because we feel like we should as as x-men podcast hosts so we'll definitely be covering that um i've been catching up on the actual comics and so i'm i'm actually pretty current so i'll be talking about the uh the current x books the new runs that they've been doing and then any breaking x-men movie news as uh you know we get closer to them actually making this dark phoenix movie that nobody's really asking for as well (laughs) we'll still be we'll still be covering all of it so and what about your OG podcast? If it bleeds, we can kill it. Our OG podcast, if it bleeds, we can kill it. Uh, with our, you know, for October, we always like to have some special episodes, and we're still sussing all that out. But we know for sure we will be doing a uh, a two part George Romero special, which Goat you will hopefully be a part of. I think I that's so. the plan. And uh, we just recently did an episode with our good buddy Tom, uh, also a buddy of yours, who's been on this show, I think, and. Uh, We'll be. We just did a, a whole Twin Peaks special where we talked nice. about both the original run, the movie, and the new, uh, le- the latest season, The Return. And yeah, and then if you go back a month or two before that, you can hear me guest starring on If It Bleeds, We Can Kill It, and we bitched about everything that's wrong with the studio system of making movies. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So a lot of shit out there. Thank you guys. I hope you guys have a great Halloween. I hope you know. I have a feeling a lot of the listeners of this show. 
uh, they really keep the Halloween spirit going in their heart, and, uh, you know, we do too, and, you know, I mean, it's a little bit different when you get older, but it's always great to kind of pop these flicks out, you know, remember. And especially, like, no matter how old you get, go, don't you just always have, be, don't you feel like in a good mood right around Halloween time? I do. I, mean, I really yeah. do. And, and I honestly like like November first is like one of the most depressing days of the year for it me. Kinda is. It, it kind of feels like all this build up and now it's over. Yeah. So yeah, everybody, stay safe. Have a great Halloween. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll we'll keep digging up the flicks at the eighties graveyard, and we'll see you around. Thanks for listening. Thanks. You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows, visit electronicmediacollective.com.